Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. So far this year, we're doing a lot of throwbacks to composers we've previously done bios on, and we hope, dear listener, that you don't mind, as we're able now to bring you even more fantastic music from these great composers. And, of course, we'll be bringing you some new composers and other subjects for the podcast in the near future. So, who do we have today? So, our return guest to the podcast today is Frederick Chopin, or Chopin. Chopin. (laughs) Frederick Chopin. Chopin, yeah. Who first made an appearance back in episode 60. And if you're having a little bit of trouble finding some of these episodes that we're referencing, some of these early ones, um, on our Spotify feed, we are running into a few difficulties there. So just go on to our website, coffeehouseclassical.podbean.com, and all the episodes should be up and running in that location. And before we get into that, just a quick refresher on Chopin himself. He was born in 1810 in Poland, although his family did have French roots. He had quite a bit of success in Paris when he moved there as an adult, and he was friends with the usual crowd of romantic composers. In fact, Robert Schumann called him a genius, while Franz Liszt unflatteringly called him, quote, all sadness, though for a romantic ideal artist, that might actually have been the highest compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Now, like, like a lot of other composers of this area, he was sickly. In this case, due to a chronic tuberculosis infection, and he, ironically, didn't like the spotlight. In modern classical music memes, he is often depicted as trembling at the piano, barely using enough force to push down the keys. But for all the perhaps undeserved mockery, he's one of the most well-known romantic composers. And you may very well recognize today's chosen piece. It is the C-sharp minor nocturne. This particular piece was written likely around 1830. The original dedication is to Chopin's sister and stated that it was somewhat of an etude in preparation for his piano concerto number two. And unfortunately, this particular nocturne didn't actually make it to the publishing house during Chopin's life, but it was finally published posthumously in 1870. And because of this posthumous publication, there are a lot of questions about the interpretive details of the piece. Chopin was very particular in most of his pieces with specifying dynamics, pedal markings, etc. However, if you compare any two editions of the C-sharp nocturne, you'll likely experience some editorial differences. In some cases, there are even some editions with different notes in the harmonies, So, if our recording this week doesn't quite match what you've heard before, just know it might be an editorial difference, because Chopin couldn't correct them. (laughs) And so, to start this piece off, first we have a little introduction. 
So being ever the subdued romantic, this isn't some grand fanfare, but rather just a little harmonic progression, which is repeated twice, and it's specifically marked piano or pianissimo. We then move into the main meat of the melody. There are two main things to focus on here. First, the melody itself, and then the harmonic bass accompaniment. The melody is slow, but uses a lot of ornamentation, such as trills, grace notes, etc., almost sounding rubato, maybe like a vocal aria. And the bass is arpeggiated broken chords that follow what sounds like a straightforward progression, but it really is not. It's a little more complex. So in the first two measures, we have a minor one to minor two back to a minor one. And that minor two chord is what's the unusual choice here, but luckily it doesn't really sound out of place because it's basically serving a similar function to a standard four chord if we had a one, four, one progression. The next two measures are a bit open to interpretation. We could say that Chopin has turned this into a major one by raising the third, or this could be a five of four, as it does resolve to a four in the next measure. And this interpretation is strengthened because the measure after that goes to a five seven, which is a fairly normal progression from the four chord before it. And then that 5-7 resolves back to 1 before picking up speed and quickly moving back to 2. The next measure actually features a non-chord tone as well, while the overall underlying harmony is 5. Chopin has the highest note of the bass still going all the way up to C-sharp, even though that is not the chord tone of 5. But it does resolve down in the very next beat to a B-sharp, which is the proper major 5 sound. And we will keep this sound right up until the last two beats of the final measure of the phrase. Which never really resolves. Chopin repeats the theme again, so we do get a bass harmonic resolution to tonic, but since the beginning part of the melody actually starts on five, the dominant, we're still kind of stuck in this headspace. What a wonderful trick by Chopin. <laughs> in this next iteration of the same opening melody, Chopin adds more ornamentation, with actually some scalar patterns thrown in. And these almost sound improvisatory thanks to the rhythm. So throughout all of this, we are, of course, in a 4-4 time, and the bass has been dutifully playing these steady eighth notes. However, these scalar runs start with eighth note triplets, and then they move to 16th note triplets. Mm -hmm. 
This use of three over two is known as polyrhythm, and Chopin uses it a lot throughout his music. And if you listen to the performer playing this, it sounds like they are almost putting in more rubato and more rhythmic expression than is written in the piece. But in fact, although there may be a little slight push and pull, it's still relatively steady. And this polyrhythm just gives it the feeling of a lot more rubato than there actually is. This second iteration of the melody isn't even an exact copy of the first time though. Chopin starts to take us in a different melodic direction, and it really focuses on building the tension before we finally get to resolve to the long-awaited tonic. course we get to the B section of the piece. As you probably could guess, this is a contrasting sound. Immediately, we are in a major key. Now, Chopin doesn't actually change the key signature, but rather just writes accidentals, particularly a D natural, which puts us into the key of A major. Now, this is a bit of an unusual choice, but it still works. Here's Asa to explain why. Right, thank you, Allison. Now, a choice that would be more standard for modulation in this case would be changing from C-sharp minor to C-sharp major, but that has an awful key signature. So on behalf of performers everywhere, thank <laughs> goodness that Chopin didn't choose that. But perhaps we could change to E major, which is the relative major of C-sharp minor, meaning that the key signature and thus the four sharps remain the same, or we could have even gone to G-sharp major, which is the fifth of C-sharp. These are all a lot more common modulations. Now the A major key is either the major six of C-sharp or it's the dominant of the four, F-sharp, which has been emphasized a bit in the previous section. So that's the interpretation that starts to make a little bit more sense. However, what makes even more sense is that we're just one position away on the circle of fifths key signature wise, so our ears may interpret this as a more dominant sound that is familiar to us, even though the actual modulation is a little bit weird. Thank you, Asa. That was a wonderful story. You're welcome. Thank you for writing it out on the page so that I could <laughs> not make any mistakes. Now back to our regularly scheduled melody. <laughs> In the melody, Chopin yet again uses the polyrhythms to make the melody sound free from the bounds of those bass eighth notes. And this section can also be thought of as an operatic style. There are a few different distinct phrases in here. This one, for example, sounds more stately and declaratory. Well, this one sounds much more light and legato. Also in this B section, Chopin suddenly alters the time, taking us into a 3-4 time signature. This is more of a transition than actual melodic content, though. It's quite a sparse passage with the right and the left hands just passing some disparate arpeggios around the lower notes. 
And because of this sudden change of pace and time signature, this sounds like it could be part of or inspired by a mazurka, which is another one of Chopin's favorite genres. This whole section then ends with a wandering upward arpeggio, actually finally in the key of G-sharp major, remember that dominant of our C-sharp minor. And it ends with a fermata on a high G-sharp, and this could almost be the end of the piece. But, of course, it's not, for this is classical music, and we must conform to tertiary structure and bring back the A section, which we do, but this time with the added ornaments and runs right off the bat. The bass line, though, remains largely the same as it had at the beginning. That is, until we get to this measure, which is almost like a start of a coda section. It starts with a strong diminished chord and a downward scale in quarter notes that lasts the next few measures. And then really the end of the melody actually arrives here, back in our C-sharp minor. Chopin concludes the piece with some very fast runs in the right hand that almost sound like glissandos, but are actually meant to be measured out to an extent. And the very last measure features a quick change to C sharp major, just for fun. <laughs> Like a ray of sunshine out of our Indeed. nocturnal peace for the evening. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I mean, it's, it is very much throughout the rest of the piece. Chopin was all sadness, but that mm -hmm. uh, one little ray of sunshine at the very end. It's nice. Yes. Quite nice. What a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful and unexpected way to end the piece. Yeah, it really does come out of nowhere. However... As you know, our podcast comes out every two weeks, not out of nowhere at all. <laughs> Very regular schedule, and you and your friends could be listening together. Indeed, Listener. you can. We are available on a variety of platforms. We do have some issues with older episodes on Spotify at the moment, but if you choose to listen there, we encourage you to leave reviews and ratings on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is that you receive podcasts into your ear bones and <laughs> share us with your friends and family please this um, <laughs> gets worse every time you think practice makes perfect but practice makes something well, else entirely you know some of this might be going into our april fools episode which Indeed. is what's coming up in two weeks from now so stay tuned for that listeners it's always one of my favorite episodes to to make because i get to hear all of the cutout bits of fun that, <laughs> that we've had forgotten off camera over the year. Yeah. off camera off microphone <laughs> off recording yeah you know yeah <laughs> and then we'll super cut them together give them to you so you can enjoy some of the fun as well all right we should definitely stop now we should so for the coffeehouse classical music podcast i'm asa 
And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Nocturne in C-sharp minor was performed by Aya Higushi. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.